Father, we come to you boldly, yet humbly. Uh, Lord, we don't have anything in ourselves that, that should give us right to enter into the holy presence of God and, uh, and make requests of you. But you are so loving, you are so kind, you, you gave us Jesus Christ, and you fill us with his own spirit. And Lord, we have been washed clean of our sin, even though our sin is horrible, even though we are all not okay. Yet your spirit fills us with grace and love and sufficiency, and it's what we, all that we need in this life is you. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Are you suffering? Are you broken? Are you being crushed right now? You're saying it's only been five seconds. Wait, ask us after you've been teaching for an hour. Then we will answer you with an amen. As a Christian, the degree to which you suffer is the degree that you will lose interest in other things and focus on Jesus and trust him from the depths of your heart. I'm going to say that again. As a Christian, the degree to which you suffer will be the degree to which you lose interest in other things and focus on Jesus and trust him from the depths of your heart. One more time, because someone wasn't listening. I don't know who was. As a Christian, the degree to which you suffer will be the degree you lose interest in other things and focus on Jesus from the depths of your heart. Suffering is not the enemy of a Christian. Suffering is not the enemy of a Christian. In everyone else in the world, their opinion is suffering is the, the, the enemy. Entire organizations are made to alleviate suffering. And I'm not saying that's bad. Suffering is bad if you think about it. But suffering is not the enemy for a Christian. It's actually a way. It's not an enemy. It's a way. It's a narrow way. But it's a narrow way that leads to life. In fact, suffering is a way of life, which is the title of our sermon today, Suffering as a Way of Life. And so with that introduction, we're going to read the letter, the entire letter to Smyrna. Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, of, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So he says 
to the angel of the church of Smyrna, who, who this is written to. Smyrna was a large city about 42 miles north of Ephesus, where we studied last week, and it was a, a rich city. It was a beautiful city, probably the most beautiful city in the world at this time. It was located in the bottom of a valley where all the trade for the entire area ran through Smyrna, through in this valley, out to the harbor, and it was overlooking this harbor. It had great beaches. be a nice place to live. In fact, it was the first planned city of the entire ancient world. One of Alexander the Great's generals was put in charge of building Smyrna. Smyrna was a city before, and it had been destroyed, and then Alexander wanted to make his name great, so he made a general in charge of planning the perfect city. And that's what Smyrna was. It was the result of his work. It was actually known then as the reborn city because it had been destroyed by an army before Alexander the Great, and then he rebuilt it. So it kind of took this nickname of being the reborn city. Now, life in this city was pretty crazy. There was a pagan city known for worshiping idols, and specifically the idol Roma, which was uh, the entire spirit of Rome. They worshiped many idols and, and false gods, but the big one was Roma. It was just the idea of Rome. It would be kind of like if someone worshiped America and talked about America all the time and talked about our founding fathers all the time and talked about how great America was all the time, um, kind of like our country today. It was also known for making wine. But the most important thing it was known for was myrrh. It was actually named after myrrh. There was, uh, Smyrna is actually the Greek name, word for myrrh. Myrrh is a resin that is extracted from a tree. And so I got a picture of the tree. There's the, the myrrh tree thing. That's what it looks like, so now you know. And then this is the resin. This next picture is the, the resin that they would extract and what this resin was, is it, it, it's, uh, it was very valuable. And when you would crush it or burn it, this beautiful smell would come out. So what they would do to extract it is they would go to the tree and they would pierce the tree with a nail. And then it would bleed out this resin over time. And it had uh, four different uses for this resin, did this myrrh. First, it was used for medicine. Uh, it would relieve pain. And they've actually done some recent studies. It acts like kind of like aspirin where it blocks some opiate uh, things in the brain. I don't understand it all, but it works as a painkiller. In fact, Jesus was offered it when he was on the cross, and he refused it. Why do you think Jesus refused to block the pain? Because he wanted to experience all the pain so that he could pay the price for our sins. It's a really neat thing to study. So first, medicine blocks pain. Secondly, a perfume. Myrrh is more costly than gold. Esther, you guys remember Esther? In the book of Esther, she was being prepared to go sit before the king, right? Be the queen. She took a six-month bath in myrrh. <laughs> wow, that's a long bath. She soaked in it for six months. And so what happened is her body absorbed the smell, and she ended up smelling like myrrh for the rest of her life and time with the king. Third, 
It's used to embalm, to bury. You guys know that they embalmed Jesus. You guys know that the, the three gifts that the, the Magi brought from the East was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold because he was king. Frankincense because he was a priest. Myrrh because he was going to die. It was symbolized his death. Incense is the fourth thing it's used for. Incense. It can be burnt. The only two ways that the fragrance of myrrh can be released is by crushing it or by burning it. You're, you're saying, I thought we were going to a Bible study today, not a nature lesson. Well, we are. But it's very important that we understand what the nature of myrrh is so that we can see what Jesus is saying to this church. You will see how important all this is because this church of Smyrna is being crushed and they're being burned at the stake. Yet, they're going to please God with their smell. It's very intriguing. He says, he goes on in the letter. He says, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So Jesus, he draws their attention to himself which is the way he does in all of these letters, right? He starts out with a revelation of Jesus, something he pulls from chapter 1, something that says, you guys need to focus on me, you need to look at me, and the aspect of me that you need to look at is that I was the first and the last, I was dead, and I came to life. Here, the first and the last means Jesus is saying, I am God. That's what that means. It's a way of saying, I am God. You don't believe me? Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Go ahead and find Isaiah. It's a real big book, just before Jeremiah, after Psalms. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, we have this great verse that helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So there, Jesus is saying, I am this guy. I am the Lord, the Lord of hosts, which means I'm the God of the angels. I'm the one who made all the angels. And I am, ev I am God. There is no other Lord besides me. He's saying, I am God. I am your God, no one else. I am everything you need. I am the beginning of what you need, and I am the end of what you need. I am God. That's what they needed to understand when they're going through suffering. And it's what we need to understand, too, when we're going through suffering, is that God is in charge of everything, and he has allowed you to go through what you're going through. And you're like, I don't like that. Well, tough. Because God is God, and you're not there are ways that we can come to deal with this. And we're going to see those as we go on here. What they did in Smyrna is they had this big temple, and they, they had this big, uh, it was a big uh, like stadium, like the Bronco Stadium, okay? And they would worship this Roma god, which, which was this idea of the nation of Rome and the Holy Empire and all this stuff. But 
what it also did is it took each Roman emperor and it exalted him to a place of God. And so they had this long succession of different emperors being worshipped as God. This big line of people that they worshipped. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm, there's no line of emperors for you guys. There's one. There's a contrast here between all of their different guys who have different personalities and different rules and different blessings and different curses. Just They were different. All these different rulers. Jesus is saying, I never change. And I'm the one person who's on the throne and will never not be on the throne. And we need to tell this to our Jehovah's Witness friends, to our Mormon friends. We need to save them from their awful misunderstanding. They don't think Jesus is God. They don't think he's the God that created the heavens and the earth, the God who became a man to die for our sins. They think he was a God or a man or the brother of Satan or all kinds of messed up misunderstandings. And what that does for them is it keeps them from knowing him and being saved by him. So we have to challenge what they say in love and say, no, Jesus is God, the one God who made everything. And he is God who became man and died for our sins. He never stopped being God and he was never less than a father. He was equal in all things to the father. They are one. So that's just something that we can remember here. So Jesus says, I know your city, Smyrna. I know that you guys were destroyed and then Alexander the Great built you up again. And that's exactly what I'm like. So you had a contrast between how they worshipped all these different emperors and now you have a similarity. Just like you guys are the reborn city, I am the reborn God. I have been born. I was dead. I was destroyed. I suffered. I submitted to the Father's wrath. I took that cup and I drank it down of God's wrath and so I died on the cross. The punishment that all men deserved, I took it because I love them, but now I'm alive, risen from the dead. Death is no longer a problem for me, and it's not a problem for you either, my church. This is the part of the description that Jesus chooses to focus on for this precious church that he loves so much because it's what they need. They needed to know that he was God on the throne, and they needed to know that death was not a problem for him because this church is suffering mightily. They, it is illegal for them to exist. They are all criminals and fugitives, and we're going to see how their suffering is amazing. He says here in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, he says, but you are rich. The word tribulation there, is the word thalipsis in the Greek. And it means crushing. Crushing. It doesn't just mean, oh, my toe hurts. It means my soul is being crushed. My body is being crushed. Everyone hates me. Life is awful. And the crazy thing is it's the same word, thalipsis, that's used for what they would do to myrrh. They would crush myrrh. They would crush it. They would thalipsis it. And Jesus says here, I know. I know what you've been going through. I know how much it hurts, the things that have come upon you. I know. 
He knows that they've been doing good works. He knows that they've been doing their best, that they're trying to serve him. But he also knows that they're suffering, being crushed, and he knows their poverty. And the word here for poverty is, is not just the word for being poor. It's, it's the word for abject poverty, complete and total, having nothing. Being the poorest of the poor is what it says. Even in a rich city. Remember, this city was the richest. It was easy to go get a job. It was easy to make a lot of money in this city, selling, mar- what? selling whatever you wanted to sell. It was available. But when someone in this city decided they wanted to follow Jesus and worship him as God, they would lose everything they had through persecution. That was the choice they were making. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 34. It's not the only group of people that experienced this. They would be giving up everything or have it all taken away, all of their earthly possessions. So for them, it was a serious decision to follow Jesus. This isn't just, what am I going to do on my Sundays because I'm super bored, like it is in our country. Well, usually I sleep till noon, but maybe I'll go to church just to have something to do. It wasn't like that. Jesus sees differently than what it appears to be. He sees that they are actually rich. He says, I know it looks like you've lost everything because you don't have anywhere to live. You don't have a job. You don't know where your meals are coming from. You're poor. You're getting skinny. He says, but really, you guys are so rich because the value of their faith cannot be measured. It's like fine gold refined in a fire. And the more they suffer, the richer they get. The more they suffer, the richer they get. Do we think about Jesus like that? And do we think about suffering? Do we think like Jesus? He says, you suffer, well done. Great job. Do we think about that when we're in the fires and we're in the crushing? Are we thinking, how? Je- man, I'm getting rich spiritually. That Jesus is really blessing us with riches that will never fade away through the millions of years to come. We are so short-sighted when we just want our suffering to end. When we want our suffering to end, prematurely, we are short-sighted. Hebrews 10.34 says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. This is a difficult thing to teach on or to talk about. But this is what's wrong with Christians who want to defend their property and their possessions. Did you know that that is sin? To defend your property and possessions is not okay, according to the Bible. Number one, you're missing out on what God really wants to give you. You're missing out, which is a huge bummer. But number two, that's not the heart of God. God says if someone asks you to go one mile, what should you do? Go two. 
If someone slaps you on the cheek, what should you do? Off the other cheek. And so on and so forth. This is the demand of the gospel, but it's because God wants to bless you with something that's real. Your possessions are lame compared to what you're going to get in heaven. And Jesus tries to tell you that. Stop worrying about your house. Stop worrying about your yards and your possessions and your garages filled with your toys. Stop. And if someone comes to you and says they're going to steal it, don't stop them. But that's not what the NRA tells me to do. We have, to, we have to look to the Bible. Look to God's word for what's right. But are you saying that we're all going to be poor? Maybe. And guess what? God will still be with you. And your ministry will be powerful. And you'll be blessed, though you might be poor. This is crazy, guys. I understand that. But I'm responsible to give the truth. Do you care too much about your stuff? Do you have security systems to protect your stuff? Now, let me say one important thing. Protecting innocent people is absolutely biblical. Protecting innocent, weak people is absolutely biblical. Go to the every extent you can to protect someone who you're responsible for protecting. But your stuff, no. Two different things. It's not biblical. The problem is, the problem isn't that these thieves are doing something illegal. That's not the real problem. The problem is that you're more concerned with earthly things than heavenly things. That's why we have to teach on this. That's why this has to be said. Not because we need to stop crime. The police, that's their job. It's not our job. The problem is our hearts are wicked and we we look to these things. And so, when we have these hearts, we have no joy in the plundering of our things. Look what he said in Hebrews 10.34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. That doesn't make sense. Why does the Bible say so many things that don't make sense? That is not how life works. Who is happy when someone breaks in and steals their stuff? He says, that's what true freedom is. When you can have joy when someone steals your stuff, plunders your goods. Whoa, this is crazy talk. I'm going to find a new church next week. That's got gun lessons. Ah, Not even feeling bad when your stuff is stolen. Do you want that heart that he said those Hebrews Christians had? Do you want it? Or are you fine living in America with our materialistic world? Are we fine with it? Do we really see the problem with America right now? Let Jesus become your life. Follow him and nothing else. Consider everything lost for the sake of just knowing him and following him. That's what you expect to hear when you come to church. So I say it. This church was free from worldly concerns because they were free from worldly possessions. Rich, you guys have ever heard that? He's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Back in the day, I don't know what day, but back in the day, people used to say that. 
Um, but the, the opposite is actually the truth. You can't be earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. You know, but does anyone in here uh, never listen to the news? Never listen to the news. And guess what? You're just fine. You're still alive. You're okay. Yes, it's okay to do it that way. Riches are not sinful, but they do make it harder to serve God. Why is the church in America so weak? Because we are so rich. I, that's the reason. We can't be deceived. Most people can't be rich and follow Jesus. That's the truth. Our hearts are too weak and we trust in riches too quickly. And it's so much easier to trust in riches that we can see than Christ who we can't see. We worry about those riches going away if we really do what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus goes on. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. In this city of Smyrna, there was a large group of Jewish people. They had their synagogue. And during this time in history, which is like 100 through 330 is the church period that we're looking at, the Jews were afraid of persecution too. The Jews were being persecuted too. They were kicked out of Israel in 70 AD. And so the Jews and the Christians were very closely united because the Christians were, were generally thought of as a sect of Judaism, just a, a part of Judaism. And so the Jews said, okay, well, we don't really like them, so we call them Nazarenes. You're, you're the Nazarenes or the Christians, the, the people who think Jesus was the Messiah. And the Jews, they really sunk down after, after being kicked out. They, really, uh, they started accusing the Christians of many things to get the persecution off of them from the Romans and onto the Christians. So they made up stories about the Christians being cannibals, saying that they ate people because of the communion. And they said that they were starting fires because they were always talking about being filled with the fire of God and the Holy Spirit, like fire. And they said they were always starting fires. And so every time there was a fire, they would blame it on Christians. And Jesus saying, I know about this. I know. It's okay. Jesus says, they are not really related to me. Jews. Jesus was a Jew, right? He was born... As a Jew, he came as the Jewish Messiah. But when they rejected him, re remember the story when Jesus is teaching in a house and his mother and brothers show up and the disciples are like, hey, your mother and brother's outside. And Jesus is like, who's my mother and brothers? And he said, those who do the will of my father are my true family. Okay? Now, he wasn't saying I hate my mom. He was just teaching them a lesson on who is really his family. So, as he's seeing what's going on here, he's saying, I understand that you guys feel connected with them, but understand they're not truly related to me. They think they are, but they are spiritually of the synagogue related to Satan or, or basically rebellion. They are in rebellion against me. That's this connection that he's making there. He's saying, I understand, and you think that they should be on your side because you believe all the same scriptures they do but it's not happening because they're rebelling against me. So now he gets to, uh, well, I want to read Romans chapter 2 to you, uh, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul does a really cute play on words right there. Because the word praise, guess what Jew means? It means praise. Jew, the word Jew means praise. Judah, praise of God. Well, as he says here, not, uh, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He's saying Jew, a true Jew who's one spiritually related to God or spiritually connected to Jesus, they are made that way by God, by believing his word, submitting to what he says, and trusting him. That's what makes a person a real Jew, he says. He says the real Jew is one who worshiped God through the heart, through Jesus Christ, his only son. Jesus is saying that, they, that the Jews really have divorced themselves from God by their rejection of him, Jesus. They were not soft or sensitive in the heart to God's plan to send his son. Many times. Does anyone know a chapter in the Old Testament where God said he would send his son to die for people? Isaiah 53, Psalm uh, 55, 52, you have all these different places where God said, I'm going to send my son. But they weren't sensitive to that fact. They kept rules and studied the Torah, but their hearts are not with me, Jesus says. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They trust in themselves, and so they follow the church of Satan, he's saying. That's the difference between a church that is of God and a church that is of Satan. One trusts in God, the other trusts in themselves. What did Satan say when he fell? I am awesome. I will be like God. I will ascend to be the most high. I don't need God. I need me, and you all need me too. And Jesus says that's the difference between a satanic church and a spirit-filled church is a church that, that acknowledges their need for God. Well, with that definition, how many churches in our city are really churches of Satan? I don't have answers for that, but I do know that I've been to many churches, and the emphasis was on you and what you can do, and you should trust in yourself, and you should do more and keep more rules and study this more. Instead of a single mind towards God and what God could do for you, it's what can I do for God? And Jesus says here, that's the difference between a satanic church and a glorious church. <sighs> that's Satan's gig, rebellion. I don't need you, God. I'm fine on my own. And Jesus says, I know all about it. I know who thinks in this room they really need me and who is here because they want to impress someone. I know, and I'm okay. I know. These Jews should be for you, but they're really against you, and I'm sorry about that. I know what that's like, he would say. We know the same God, but their heart is not right because they've not accepted his son. So now I'm going to tell you now a story of the pastor in Smyrna, and his name was Polycarp. During this time, the pastor in Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. There's actually a movie on Netflix right now, you can Netflix it, called Polycarp. It's his story. Well, it's kind of a made-up fictional story like about him. 
But he was John's disciple. So John is who? The guy who wrote this. His disciple, the one he trained to raise up and taught to be pastor, was Polycarp. Polycarp, in 155 AD, was the pastor of Smyrna. And persecution was well underway by that time. Many years, the Romans had been persecuting them. And so um, what they would do in Smyrna is this annual ritual of worshiping the emperor through this whole Roma thing that we talked about. And so what they would do is they would pinch some myrrh, they would crush it so it would smell good, and they would put it in this little incense burner so it would burn it and crush it at the same time. Well, and they would have to say, as they did this, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians would not do this. And so they dressed Christians up in sheepskins and they would put them in the arena and feed them to lions. This is the persecution that they suffered. On February 23rd, 155, uh, 35,000 people were crowded in their arena and they started calling for Polycarp's life. He was the pastor of all the Christians in this city. And they started calling for him. He had had a dream earlier that day that this would be the day that he would see Jesus and he would die. And he had even told his students and his students were like, hey, we need to get you out of the city. But he said, no, this is my time. This is, I want to die for the Lord. So he stood before the judge. They brought him in. The soldiers came. They brought him before the judge, the magistrate. And the judge said, you are old. You don't need to die like this. Just say Caesar's Lord and you can go. But Polycarp said, it's a real famous quote from him. 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has never done anything wrong to me. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? So they tied him to a stake. They had already put the animals away, but the people kept shouting, kill him, kill him, kill him. And so they're like, all right, well, we'll just burn him. So they tied him to a stake and put all the kindling below him, and they lit it on fire, but they had a hard time lighting it. And then when they finally did get it lit, all the flames just went around Polycarp and wouldn't burn him. So they're like, this is crazy. So they got angry. And so they just pierced him and his blood put out the fire. And so all the people who saw this saw a great testimony of God saying, this is my servant. And it's, an, it's really a cool story. Now, back in our text, Jesus says to them, do not fear. Do not fear is the next words we see in verse 10. Any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And you will be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. So again, in history, this church of Smyrna represents the entire Christian church from the time of about 100 when the persecution started till about 313 A.D. This is called the time of the persecuted church. And the 10 days, Jesus says here, they represent 10 waves of persecution that would come across the church. And during this 213 years, over 5 million Christians would be killed in public arenas. Now, considering the population back then and the population today, that would be like 500 million Christians being killed today which is crazy. Now, these 10 waves of persecution directly line up with 10 straight emperors in Rome. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, Maximus, the Theacrian, I don't know, Decius, Valerian, and Diocletian. 10 emperors in a row that each persecuted the church with different, in different ways and at different times. 
these tough times happened to the church. This was a real time in our history, our church's history. Being a Christian did cost you your life, but this was also the time of greatest growth in the entire history of the church. It spread everywhere in the world during this time. How does that make sense? Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He said, be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of your life. He's saying here, faith is more important than your life. Faith is more important than your life. Would you be willing to trust Jesus even if you were being tortured? That's a tough question for Americans. We love our comfort. Corey Ten Boom said, God doesn't give you dying grace until you're dying. What she means by that is she's like, don't worry about it right now. Focus on your, growing your relationship with God. And if he wants you to die, he'll give you the grace and the ability to do that. That's what she said. He will be faithful to us there. He will enable us if that ever is what happens in our country, which I kind of hope it does. You will never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's what we're learning from this church. You will never know that Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. Now, you can know it in your brain, but your heart is a totally different story. There are wicked, evil corners and cobwebs in your heart that don't trust in Jesus right now. And suffering is the only way to seek those things out, to flush those things out. We have to embrace suffering, not want to run away from it. Jesus is all we need, but our Culture and our comfortable world around us has dulled us to really knowing that in our hearts. This is why we need crushing. We need pain. We need trials. Well, I thought my life was to get rid of trials. I thought suffering was something to be gotten out of as soon as possible. That's what everything in this world says. But that's not what Jesus says. Our trials crack us open, don't they? So that the beauty of Jesus can leak out. So that people can smell what Jesus has planted in your heart. And not only the people in this world smell it, but your Father in heaven loves when you suffer and are broken and what comes out is praise and surrender. That is what causes the father more joy than anything else is when his child would say, I trust you even though you slay me, as Job said. I will trust you even if you kill me. Suffering is not our enemy, it is our friend. Suffering is our way of life. And yes, you will die like Obi-Wan. But you will live like Obi-Wan. <laughs> Jesus says his gift for faith. I just got Star Wars. It was so good. Oh my gosh. His gift for faith is life. He says, I'm going to give you this crown of, of life. His reward for trusting him is a crown of life. 
a never-ending, eternal, perfect life, what you really have been wanting with all this stuff and possessions. He says, I'll give it to you if you give me your faith and trust. If you trust me, you'll live. There's nothing more to it. It's as simple as it can be. It's his word and his promise. I will give it, he says. It's, it's like a crown. I will give it to you. I have these crowns. I got a whole room full of them. I can give it to you. I have the resources. There are two different words for crown in the ancient Greek. One described the crown, kind of crown a king would wear, a crown of royalty. The other is a crown called uh, from the Greek word stephanos, which is used here, which is a trophy given to a winning athlete. And Jesus looks at the Christians of Samaria, Samaria, Smyrna, Samaria, Smyrna, and he says, you are my winners. You get the trophy. Why? Because they embraced suffering. This race, you are winning by faith, Jesus says. You are willing to suffer and die for me. You're willing to be broken for me, and I will never forget it, and I will reward you better than you can ever imagine. So what does that mean to us in Denver in 2016? Because we're not being persecuted, right? I mean, there's people that are like, oh, we're being persecuted. We're not. I don't see people walking around killing Christians here in America right now. But we can still be broken. We can still be crushed. We can still trust in our God and follow him when it hurts, not with what's easy. We're so quick to run away from suffering. Our church is, every church in this country is. This church shows us the race is to run into suffering. Anyone ever seen that Tough mutter? I have never seen someone, you've done the Tough mutter. Who else, anyone else done the Tough mutter? All right, Jeremy, you are the man. You are the only man here today. Well, in <laughs> the Tough mutter, did you see anybody run around an obstacle? And... <laughs> And let me guess, they did not have a beard. Amen, brother. Amen. Or they were a girl. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Well, they do not win, right? Right. They don't win if they run around an obstacle, right? You can't win. You're disqualified, right? Okay. Well, you have obstacles in your life called suffering and trials. And if you go around it, you're disqualified. That's not how you win the race. I don't know what your suffering is. Maybe your suffering is you're married to a psycho. Maybe your suffering is your kids are crazy. Maybe your suffering is your job. A lot of people say, amen. <laughs> Maybe your suffering is your body and your, your pain. And when our hearts truly desire to run away from suffering... We're, we're jogging around the tough mudder obstacles and we're not going through where God is not here to totally destroy you, but he does want to break you open because he's planted something inside you that is so beautiful. It's so lovely. It so, smells so good to him that he's willing to break you in order to let everyone else in the world see what he's done in you. It's this attitude of, Bring it on. Bring it on, Lord. 
in my own personal testimony, you know, my my previous wife was going out, uh, and, and it was a real tough situation where I was suffering, and I had an opportunity to get out of the marriage. I had biblical reasons that I could have gotten out of the marriage, and I had Christians come alongside me and say, Sean, God doesn't want you to suffer like this anymore. People put their arms around me, thinking that they were comforting me, thinking that they were helping me. And they would say, it's okay for you to, to get out right now. And in my life, I, I sought the Lord, and by his Holy Spirit, he gently told me, those people are liars and they're wrong. I want you to suffer because I love you. And I've planted something in you that can only come out through great suffering. And so years, I, I spent three years abiding in a relationship that I was faithful and the other person was not for that entire time. And, I, and it hurt, deeply hurt. And God has released something inside me that my wife now gets benefit. She smells it. Not all the time. She smells some other things too, but <laughs> it's, it's real in our life. And it's why I'm a pastor. It's why I am who God has made me today. Why did David have to go through all those years of horrible suffering under Saul? Because God planted something in David that needed crushing. It was myrrh. His faith was myrrh. And David needed to be crushed. Not because God was angry at David. God loved David. Why has your life been so horrible? Why have you gone through the horrible things you've gone through? Because God wants the smell. He wants to release what he has planted inside you. So Jesus says in verse 11, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Overcoming. We see this overcoming in every letter, don't we? And we think, oh, our, our, our legalist minds instantly go to, okay, so there's a list of rules by how I overcome, but that's not it. We overcome by our close association with Jesus himself. We've overcome by faith. Jesus is the one who is the ultimate overcomer. We overcome when we just sit in his lap and go for the ride. And Jesus said in John 16, I, in the world you will have tribulation, which guess what that word is? Crushing. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The second death is hell and the lake of fire. Though Satan has threatened and attacked the life of this church and our lives too, Jesus promises that his overcomers, for his overcomers, death is already conquered. Does anyone know what Jesus throws into hell at the very end? Besides all the people? He throws death in there too. In other words, it might hurt now what you're going through. It does hurt now, doesn't it? But Jesus has an answer to pain. 
And it's the only answer in all of philosophy, every religion, it's the only answer that satisfies the soul. His answer is, abide in me, and I will make it all worth it. I will reward you, and I will ultimately do away with all the death, all the pain. It will all go into hell, and you won't be hurt by the second death. You will be with me. That's his answer. His answer is, abide in me, I will make it all worth it. The more you hurt now, the more you'll be blessed later. The more you suffer now, the more you'll be comforted later. The more you are broken now, the more you will be honored later. This is a race and a contest, and the way up is down. To increase, we must decrease. It's an upside-down kingdom. The servants are the greatest. The sufferers are the most glorified. As a Christian, the degree to which you suffer will be the degree you lose interest in other things and focus on Jesus Christ and trust him from the depths of your heart. Do you remember that we said that? As a Christian, the degree to which you suffer will be the degree you lose interest in other things. Suffering is not the enemy for a Christian. It's a way. It's a narrow way that few people go on, right? There's a broad way that leads to death and destruction. And there's a narrow way that leads to life. This is the narrow way. This is the way of life that ends with a crown of life given to you, just like this says. Broad is the way that leads to discretion. Narrow is the way that leads to life. This church of Smyrna was on the right path. They were willing to suffer. They were being refined by the fire. They were broken and crushed. And he didn't need to say any words of correction to this church. This is the one church. Well, there might be another. There's another church. This is one of the two churches that didn't have any words of correction given to it. He's just like, you guys are suffering. You're fine. That is the pinnacle of the work of God in your life. Not to get you out of suffering, but to get us to embrace suffering. If you're suffering, do not fear. God is working it out for a blessing. If you're broken, do not fear. God is blessing those around you by your spiritual smells. Your love and patience and grace that God is working in your heart is blessing those around you, whether you know it or not. If you are being crushed, do not fear. God is so satisfied by smelling the aromas coming out of your heart that he is placed in you. We're done. <laughs>